Section 78 of Mark Twain, A Biography. Part 2, 1907 to 1910. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, A Biography by Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter 289 The Death of Jean. He decided to go home for the holidays, and how fortunate it seems now that he did so. We sailed for America on the 18th of December, arriving the 21st. Jean was at the wharf to meet us, blue and shivering with the cold, for it was wretchedly bleak there, and I had the feeling that she should not have come. She went directly, I think, to Stormfield, he following a day or two later. On the 23rd I was lunching with Jean alone. She was full of interest in her Christmas preparations. She had a handsome tree set up in the loggia, and the packages were piled about it, with new ones constantly arriving. With her farm management, her housekeeping, her secretary work, and her Christmas preparations, it seemed to me that she had her hands over full. Such a mental pressure could not be good for her. I suggested that, for a time at least, I might assume a part of her burden. I was to remain at my own home that night, and I think it was as I left Stormfield that I passed Jean on the stair. She said cheerfully that she felt a little tired and was going up to lie down, so that she would be fresh for the evening. I did not go back, and I never saw her alive again. I was at breakfast next morning when word was brought in that one of the men from Stormfield was outside and wished to see me immediately. When I went out, he said, "'Miss Jean is dead. They have just found her in her bathroom. Mr. Clemens sent me to bring you.' It was as incomprehensible as such things always are. I could not realize at all that Jean, so full of plans and industries and action, less than a day before, had passed into that voiceless mystery which we call death. Harry Isles drove me rapidly up the hill. As I entered Clemens' room, he looked at me helplessly and said, "'Well, I suppose you have heard of this.' final disaster. He was not violent or broken down with grief. He had come to that place where, whatever the shock or the ill turn of fortune, he could accept it, and even in that first moment of loss he realized that, for Jean at least, the fortune was not ill. Her malady had never been cured, and it had been one of his deepest dreads that he would leave her behind him, it was believed at first that Jean had drowned, and Dr. Smith tried methods of resuscitation, but then he found that it was simply a case of heart cessation caused by the cold shock of her bath. The Gabrilowiczes were by this time in Europe, and Clemens cabled them not to come. Later in the day he asked me if we would be willing to close our home for the winter and come to Stormfield. He said that he should probably go back to Bermuda before long, but that he wished to keep the house open so that it would be there for him to come to at any time that he might need it. We came, of course, for there was no thought among any of his friends but for his comfort and peace of mind. Jervis Langdon was summoned from Elmira, for Jean would lie there with the others. In the loggia stood the half-trimmed Christmas tree, and all about lay the packages of gifts, and in Jean's room on the chairs and upon her desk were piled other packages. Nobody had been forgotten. 
For her father she had bought a handsome globe. He had always wanted one. Once, when I went into his room, he said, I have been looking in at Jean and envying her. I have never greatly envied anyone but the dead. I always envy the dead. He told me how, the night before, they had dined together alone, how he had urged her to turn over a part of her work to me, how she had clung to every duty as if now, after all the years, she was determined to make up for lost time. While they were at dinner a telephone inquiry had come concerning his health, for the papers had reported him as returning from Bermuda in critical condition. He had written this playful answer. Manager Associated Press, New York. I hear the newspapers say I am dying. The charge is not true. I would not do such a thing at my time of life. I am behaving as good as I can. Merry Christmas to everybody. Mark Twain. Jean telephoned it for him to the press. It had been the last secretary service she had ever rendered. She had kissed his hand, he said, when they parted, for she had a severe cold and would not wish to impart it to him. Then happily she had said good night, and he had not seen her again. The reciting of this was good to him, for it brought the comfort of tears. Later, when I went in again, he was writing. I am setting it down he said. Everything. It is a relief to me to write it. It furnishes me an excuse for thinking. He continued writing most of the day, and at intervals during the next day and the next. It was on Christmas Day that they went with Jean on her last journey. Katie Leary, her baby nurse, had dressed her in the dainty gown which she had worn for Clara's wedding and they had pinned on it a pretty buckle which her father had brought her from Bermuda, and which she had not seen. No Greek statue was ever more classically beautiful than she was, lying there in the great living-room, which in its brief history had seen so much of the round of life. They were to start with Jean at about six o'clock, and a little before that time Clemens—he was unable to make the journey— asked me what had been her favorite music. I said that she seemed always to care most for the Schubert Impromptu, Opus 142, No. 2. Then he said, Play it when they get ready to leave with her, and add the intermezzo for Susie, and the largo for Mrs. Clemens. When I hear the music, I shall know that they are starting. Tell them to set lanterns at the door, so I can look down and see them go. So I sat at the organ and began playing as they lifted and bore her away. A soft, heavy snow was falling, and the gloom of those shortest days was closing in. There was not the least wind or noise. The whole world was muffled. The lanterns at the door threw their light out on the thickly falling flakes. I remained at the organ, but the little group at the door saw him come to the window above. The light on his white hair as he stood mournfully gazing down, watching Jean going away from him for the last time. 
I played steadily on as he had instructed, the impromptu, the intermezzo from Cavalleria, and Handel's Largo. When I had finished I went up and found him. "'Poor little Jean,' he said. "'But for her it is so good to go.' In his own story of it he wrote, "'From my windows I saw the hearse and the carriages wind along the road and gradually grow vague and spectral in the falling snow and presently disappear jean was gone out of my life and would not come back any more the cousin she had played with when they were babies together he and her beloved old katie were conducting her to her distant childhood home, where she will lie by her mother's side once more in the company of Susie and Langdon. He did not come down to dinner, and when I went up afterward I found him curiously agitated. He said, For one who does not believe in spirits, I have had a most peculiar experience. I went into the bathroom just now and closed the door. You know how warm it always is in there, and there are no drafts. All at once I felt a cold current of air about me. I thought the door must be open, but it was closed. I said, Jean, is this you trying to let me know you have found the others? And the cold air was gone. I saw that the incident had made a very great impression upon him, but I don't remember that he ever mentioned it afterward. Next day the storm had turned into a fearful blizzard. The whole hilltop was a raging, driving mass of white. He wrote most of the day but stopped now and then to read some of the telegrams or letters of condolence which came flooding in. Sometimes he walked over to the window to look out on the furious tempest. Once during the afternoon he said, "'Jean always so loved to see a storm like this, and just now, at Elmira, they are burying her.' Later he read aloud some lines by Alfred Austin which Mrs. Crane had sent him, lines which he had remembered in the sorrow for Susie. When last came sorrow around barn and byre, wind careen snow, the year's white sepulchre lay. Come in, I said, and warm you by the fire, and there she sits and never goes away. It was that evening that he came into the room where Mrs. Payne and I sat by the fire, bringing his manuscript. "'I have finished my story of Jean's death,' he said. "'It is the end of my autobiography. I shall never write any more. I can't judge it myself at all. One of you read it aloud to the other, and let me know.' what you think of it. If it is worthy, perhaps some day it may be published. 
It was, in fact, one of the most exquisite and tender pieces of writing in the language. He had ended his literary labors with that perfect thing which so marvelously speaks the loftiness and tenderness of his soul. It was thoroughly in keeping with his entire career that he should, with this rare dramatic touch, bring it to a close. A paragraph which he omitted may be printed now. December 27th. Did I know Jean's value? No. I only thought I did. I knew a ten-thousandth fraction of it. That was all. It is always so with us. It has always been so. We are like the poor, ignorant, private soldier, dead now four hundred years, who picked up the great Sancy diamond on the field of the lost battle and sold it for a franc. Later he knew what he had done. Shall I ever be cheerful again? Happy again? Yes, and soon, for I know my temperament, and I know that the temperament is master of the man, and that he is its fettered and helpless slave, and must in all things do as it commands. A man's temperament is born in him, and no circumstances can ever change it. My temperament has never allowed my spirits to remain depressed long at a time. That was a feature of Jean's temperament, too. She inherited it from me. I think she got the rest of it from her mother. Jean Clemens had two natural endowments, the gift of justice and a genuine passion for all nature. In a little paper found in her desk she had written, I know a few people who love the country as I do, but not many. Most of my acquaintances are enthusiastic over the spring and summer months, but very few care much for it the year round. A few people are interested in the spring foliage and the development of the wild flowers. Nearly all enjoy the autumn colors, while comparatively few pay much attention to the coming and going of the birds, the changing in their plumage and songs, the apparent springing into life on some warm April day of the chipmunks and woodchucks, the scurrying of baby rabbits, and again in the fall the equally sudden disappearance of some of the animals, and the growing shyness of others. To me it is all as fascinating as a book, more so, since I have never lost interest in it. It is simple and frank, like Thoreau. Perhaps, had she exercised it, there was a third gift, the gift of written thought. Clemens remained at Stormfield ten days after Jean was gone. The weather was fiercely cold, the landscape desolate, the house full of tragedy. He kept pretty closely to his room, where he had me bring the heaps of letters, a few of which he answered personally. For the others he prepared a simple card of acknowledgment. He was, for the most part, in gentle mood during these days, 
though he would break out now and then and rage at the hardness of a fate that had laid an unearned burden of illness on jean and shadowed her life they were days not wholly without humor none of his days could be altogether without that though it was likely to be a melancholy sort many of the letters offered orthodox comfort saying in effect god does not willingly punish us when he had read a number of these he said well why does he do it then we don't invite it why does he give himself the trouble i suggested that it was a sentiment that probably gave comfort to the writer of it so it does he said and i am glad of it glad of anything that gives comfort to anybody he spoke of the larger god the god of the great unvarying laws and by and by dropped off to sleep quite peacefully and indeed peace came more and more to him each day with the thought that jean and susie and their mother could not be troubled any more to mrs gabrilovich he wrote reading connecticut december twenty ninth nineteen o nine o clara clara dear i am so glad she is out of it and safe safe i am not melancholy i shall never be melancholy again i think you see i was in such distress when i came to realize that you were gone far away and no one stood between her and danger but me and i could die at any moment and then oh then what would become of her for she was willful you know and would not have been governable you can't imagine what a darling she was that last two or three days and how fine and good and sweet and noble and joyful thank heaven and how intellectually brilliant i had never been acquainted with jean before i recognized that but i mustn't try to write about her i can't i have already poured my soul out with the pen recording that last day or two i will send you that and you must let no one but ossip read it good-bye i love you so and ossip father end of chapter two hundred and eighty nine the death of jean read by john greenman